Spencer, springtime, a lot of people looking to buy new bikes, new gear, and right now, the VeloNews gear issue is out. Get your copy today. We took a little bit different tack with the gear issue than we did in years past. Uh, give me the lowdown. What's going on here? Yeah, so uh, in years past, we had lots and lots and lots of reviews of all sorts of product in this uh, buyer's guide. We still have those reviews of the key bikes and products that we loved and that we tested extensively. But for the gear issue in 2019, we provided a lot more sort of what we call service content to help you, the reader, spend your money more wisely and understand the trends in the industry that maybe can help you make your decisions in a more informed way. Yeah, it's all about bang for your buck and then getting educated on what is going on in the bike market, gear market, apparel market, etc. So that is the VeloNews gear issue. Really, really snappy cover. Bright blue, bunch of different pieces of gear on it. Get yours today. We'll be on newsstand soon. Subscribers already have it, but check it out. All right, let's get on with the show. You're tuned into the Velonews podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, joined by Spencer Paulison. Spencer, we've had kind of a rough few days here in American cycling. Um, last Friday, we had the news that um, rider diarist and Olympic silver medalist Kelly Catlin had died due to suicide. Um, we have some stories on velonews.com right now. A great tribute from her teammate, Chloe Digert, but it's just, it's, it's really, really tough news. I, I don't know how you have uh, been reacting to some of the stories that have coming out. Yeah. Coming really, out around it. really stunning news. Very, very sad, really, really tragic news. Not a lot that I personally can say. I just feel, I just feel really, um, really shocked by it. And we're still, we're still learning about it. You have a great story that was published on Tuesday, Fred, with a lot of in-depth insight from her family. I'd encourage all of our listeners to go read that on velonews.com. Coming up in this show, we'll have a really, uh, really insightful interview with her, with her brother, Colin. Yeah, our thoughts and um, our deepest condolences go out to the Catlin family, her friends, her teammates, people who knew her well. And as Spencer mentioned, second half of the show, I talked with Colin, who is one of triplets. So Kelly, Colin, and Christine are the Catlin children. Colin uh, was roommates with Kelly in college. He actually got her into cycling, and he had some great insight into her life. And so uh, we'll catch up with him the second part of the show. But we had some great, really great racing go on this past weekend. We had Strada Bianca uh, opening Women's World Tour race and then one of the first big one-day classics for us. And uh, we, we got to get into some takeaways because we have, we have just hot takes just overflowing from this race. Uh, let's start with the women's race. We saw Annemiek van Vluten solo to victory. She attacked on the last really steep hill, built a 40-second lead, and some of the chasers, really, really strong firepower of chasers could not bring her back. And my take, Spencer... Okay, how long has it been since Annemiek van Vluten crashed and broke her kneecap at Worlds? Like, doesn't seem like that long ago. And here she is, first Women's World Tour race, just throwing huge haymakers. This is, I mean, she's, she's ready to go. Absolutely. And she said in post-race comments that 
there was a bit of uncertainty in terms of having a short time to prepare for this race. She'd always wanted to do well at it. She'd always wanted to win this race. Uh, and, and she just worked her butt off to get fit in time for Strada Bianca, this early season race at the start of March. And clearly it paid off. And clearly there's a huge advantage to being a former world time trial champion to be able to ride away from the group on a really, really decisive gravel sector like that one and and to be able to hold them off. And boy, you know, we talk and talk and talk about how Bulls Dolmans has this infallible squad of, of hit riders who are just unbelievable, but Van Vluten really is their kryptonite and she's found ways to do this over the years. I'm thinking also back to La Course by Tour de France last last year. That was also a pretty pretty strong example of how Van Vluten is kind of a, a one-woman wrecking team. Yeah, what really blew me away was that you look at that chase group. So you have Anna van der Breggen, world champion. And you have Chantal Black, who was by far the strongest rider the weekend before at... Former Omnipedis, world champion. Former yeah. world champion. And they were not skipping pulls. They were pulling hard. You also had Kasia Nui-Adoma in there. You just had, it, it wasn't like a front group of nobodies. It no. was all-star riders. They took a little while to get organized, but once they started pulling, Van Vluten was just so far out there, they couldn't get her back. I, I was bummed for Nui Adoma. Yeah. She's been s- close, but no Sakar at this race so many times. She came away second place, I believe. Three so. times in a row. Oh, yeah. so this, oh, the, the 2019, this year, she was third, actually. She was third. So behind Annika Longvad. Yeah. Another point of conversation there, the former mountain bike world champion showing up and just absolutely throwing down in a road, in a world tour road race. But yeah, I agree with you. Niwi Adoma, I love watching her race. She's got such a great personality. She's fun. She's exciting. She's a fan favorite. She's won some big races, including, I'm, I'm thinking back to the OVO Women's Tour with these really panache-laden solo attacks. I want to see more of that from her. And man, the Strada Bianca really would be such a great race to see her win. And she, her heart is really in it. You could tell in the post-race interview that she was kind of bewildered that she hadn't been able to to hang with Van Vluten. You saw when Van Vluten got away, Niwi Adoma was absolutely str- struggling through that steep dirt gradient. And uh, being a pure climber like she is, you would think that she'd have a chance to respond, but she didn't. And uh, that's it, it remains on her to-do list. I'm very sure of that. And uh, I'd imagine she has some regrets looking back on it. Yeah, she seemed real bummed out. Uh, men's race, awesome. Awesome battle between Jakob Fugelsang, Wout van Aert, and Mr. Julian Alaphilippe. Mm. So, you know, this was a very dry, fast race. Came down into 50K to go. There were some reshufflings at the front. That's when Tim Wellens made a move. Uh, a couple other riders made some surges. And then it was coming into, I felt like a, kind of an innocuous section. It was a paved section. And then all of a sudden, bam! Jakob Fugelsang attacks off the front, Julian Alaphilippe right with him, and then none other than Wout van Aert makes it a trio. I was a little surprised more riders didn't react to that. I know EF Education First had uh, Simon Clark in that group, and then some of the other favorites, like Greg Van Avermaet, who said afterwards he had good legs, no, no reaction from him. I mean, it's like Jakob Fugelsang is a pretty class rider. I feel like when you see a guy of that level go off the front, if you're able to, you chase, but you know, the group hesitated just for a couple moments and that was it. Group was gone. And let's remember too, that I believe there are two quick step riders in that chase group, uh, which, which I'm sure helped Julian Alaphilippe who had gone away and having teammates in the chase behind is nice. It definitely might've helped him. At one point, Alexi Lutsenko was in that front group who's all a rider 
teammate of Jakob Fulsang. Maybe that also was a factor in the chase group's willingness to drive the tempo. I'm not certain. Maybe they just underestimated those three riders or were just tired. It's a very hard race. And uh, immediately after that break, when I'm pretty sure they got into the most decisive gravel sector and... The, there could have been a bit of a hubris on the part of some of those top riders in the chase group thinking that with such a difficult dirt sector ahead, they'd easily be able to reel in the the, the escape. So Van Aert was dropped. He fought his way back. We all love that. Oh, go wow, the cyclocrosser. Hey, I am a big wow fan. I, yeah. I was... I, I, it was a thriller. It was a thriller. But, you know, the real mono I, I thought he was going to get caught. I thought he'd go back to that chase group. The real mono mono battle, Jakob Fuglesang versus Julian Alaphilippe. Now... Alaphilippe won. He mm. was the odds-on favorite to win because of his punch. He is a real punchy, exciting, accelerating climber. My question to you, Spencer, is Is there anything Jakob Fuglesang could have done differently in the waning kilometers of this race to try and win? Mm. You know, I saw in Andrew Hood's story today about uh, Alaphilippe's potential. I saw I saw a quote from from the French rider saying that he had kind of reached a little bit of an agreement with Fulsong that they weren't going to attack each other into that final uh, final climb to Siena and that they wanted to work together, which I think is probably a fairly smart idea considering the firepower in that chase group behind. However, I, I have to think that Fulsong maybe shouldn't have been so quick to accept terms from Alaphilippe knowing that Julian Alaphilippe can easily win on a climb like that one to Siena. And furthermore, I feel like maybe they should, maybe, maybe Fulsong should have done a little more to keep Wout Van Aert in the mix in their front group because in the end, Van Aert caught back onto them. And of course, no one knows and you can't predict that sort of thing. But hypothetically, it would have been better to have Van Aert with them for that entire escape to share the load a little more. And perhaps that would have saved Fulsong's legs a little bit for that final climb. I'm not sure. He he certainly wasn't too far off Alaphilippe on the uh, on the last pitch to the, to the finish in Siena. He was within sight. So it wasn't like a total blowout. Yeah, I would not have made any type of deal with Julian Alaphilippe. Yeah, come on. He's I a mean, Frenchman. Especially he's a Frenchman. Fuglesong, man, he's a great time trialist. Yeah. He has won big time trials over the years. You figure he's a heavier rider. If he is able to attack him and drop him on the flats, he maybe has a better chance of soloing in. But what what do we know? We're just some some couch jockeys, some keyboard warriors, as Sam Bennett told me. Yeah. Just guys over here having hot takes. But still, I, I thought Fuglesong should have tried a couple more times on the flats with some blistering attacks, but it didn't happen. Chapeau to Julian Alaphilippe. Hey, I love seeing him win. What does this tell us about Julian Alaphilippe that we didn't, did, did it tell us something about Julian Alaphilippe that we didn't already know? Another thing I got from uh, Andrew Hood's story today was, the fact that Alaphilippe considers himself a potential winner of Tour of Flanders. Mm. And we've never really pegged him as a cobbles rider, as a Northern Classics rider. Granted, Flanders isn't quite as rough as Perry Roubaix. We all know that. But uh, Tour of Flanders, man, that'd be exciting if he was a factor in that race, considering his tactical wisdom and his ability to attack these short, steep climbs. He's, uh, he's really proven himself in the last year or so. And I think that the uh, I think the potential is is really opening up now for him beyond just those Ardennes classics where he'd already been in the mix for years now, finishing second to to Alejandro Valverde on, on several occasions in, in the major Ardennes races. Before he goes for Flanders, you get, get a monument first, guy. Win well, Liège, win uh, Lombardy. Yeah, I say hit, the, win the, a hilly monument and then uh, turn yourself into a. Uh, 
Belgian cobblestone grinder. I know Lefebvre would love for him to be a, a Flanders man. I mean, yeah, at this point, I feel like Lombardia is the only option. Yeah. The, the, the new finish in Liège is probably too flat for Alaphilippe. He's not going to have the same advantage on a guy like Van Avermet or Sagan. Mm-hmm. And, um, we'll see. We will see, yeah. I'm looking uh, forward I, to that. I think this is a monument year for Julian Alaphilippe. Anyway, it was a thrilling Strada Bianca. There are replays online if you want to go watch it. Uh, Spencer, before we get to this interview with Colin Catlin, just a quick recap of the news around Kelly Catlin. So Kelly was a member of the individual of the team pursuit team that won silver at the 2016 Olympics, three-time world champion with that team. She's from Minnesota. Just a, you know, people loved this gal. She wrote a diary for us about her life. One of the things that stood out about her was that she juggled multiple commitments. She was a pro road racer with Rally. She raced on the U.S. national team for track, and she was also pursuing a degree in computational mathematics from Stanford. She was a genius. You talk to these people who knew her, she could recite pi out to 400 decimal points. She knew Chinese. She excelled playing at the violin. She was just this multi, multi-talented person. And that was, a, that was a master's degree she was pursuing, right? Yeah. She had already yeah. done her undergraduate. Yeah, and so uh, I spoke with Colin about Kelly's life and her untimely passing. You know, I'm not going to lie. It's it's a difficult interview. It was a very difficult story to work on. Um, but anyway, please enjoy this interview with Colin Catlin talking about Kelly's life. Okay, right now I am joined by Colin Catlin. Colin is the brother of Kelly Catlin. Uh, Late last week, we learned the tragic news that Kelly had died by suicide at her residence in Stanford, California, or at Stanford University in California. Since then, um, I've been talking to Kelly's family, coaches, people who knew her very well to get a picture of Kelly's life and her death uh, for a story that's on VeloNews.com right now. Um, first off, Colin, I, you know, my deepest condolences go out to you and your entire family. Um, how would you describe the way, you know, w- where the family is right now in um, processing Kelly's death? As you can imagine, we are absolutely devastated. Um, it kind of took us by surprise, of course. Um, she had attempted suicide earlier, but she had been recovering very well. And so she meant so much to our whole family. Um, I mean, obviously, she was my twin sister of triplets. We were incredibly close. She was half of my life, and half of my life is just gone. All my past, all my future with her. And the same with my parents. Uh, like, my dad is, we're so in, very much into cycling, and she was the center, the fulcrum of that experience. So. Uh, and we've lost a large portion of that as well. Now, Colin, before we get into discussing the details around Kelly's death, I'd love to talk to you first about um, your life together. As you mentioned, you were triplets uh, yourself, Kelly and Christine. You grew up outside of Minneapolis. Uh, seemed like all three Catlin children pursued you know, a wide range of activities outside of school, foreign languages, sports. You know, what was it like growing up in this family? What were the types of things that you guys were into? We were extremely competitive. 
as you can probably tell by how successful Kelly got, she was extremely driven. And that was kind of part of this environment we had when we were younger. We, we were all constantly trying new things. We we're all trying to one up each other, always trying to have been the first to try this new thing and be really good at it. Um, and Kelly, of course, was she didn't try maybe as many things as some of the rest of us did, but she still did so many things. She was, of course, incredibly good at academics. She kept a straight A grade point average up through her entire life into grad school. Um, and her per, and her cycling, of course, as you're all very well familiar, she was incredibly focused and always very good at training. And then she had so much more beyond that, though. It wasn't just school and cycling. She played classical violin. Um, and then I always love to say that, you know, she played this classical violin. She had this persona that she listened to classical music. But if you actually ever snuck in and unplugged her headphones and heard what she was listening to, she was listening to this in ger- industrial heavy metal from Germany usually. And like the, some of the band names are literally like noise. And that's what the music she was listening to was just this hard, heavy metal noise. And then she also like and then compare that with the thing. She, she has this huge collection of briar horses. If you're not familiar with those, these are model horses. She loved horses. She loved ponies, but then you would never, ever see that come through because it was like, oh, so austere. Um, and she, <laughs> her, her relationship with animals is an interesting one to follow because she loved making animal noises, especially at me, not in public very much. But her standard greeting uh, whenever I disturbed her was to hiss at me. And she had this whole repertoire of pre-formatted animal noises. Um, she loved to pretend that she was a velociraptor. Um, she, she loved eat- she loved Jurassic Park, and so she would uh, run around kind of uh, – I think she saw herself on a bike as basically man- a manifestation of a velociraptor, you know, fast and predatory. So you, you can see that in her cycling, and also you could see that in her entire personality. Um, there's just so many things. She loved you know, art. She loved music. She was great at sports. She loved Egyptology. Uh, her favorite uh, TV show was Stargate, and that was kind of – you may not be familiar with that TV show, but they travel through this – ring to other planets and it's based in Colorado Springs and as you're probably familiar she trained in Colorado Springs a lot the Olympic Training Center so she always kind of had this dream she could see Cheyenne Mountain there in the background that she was sort of training as elite program in some ways connected to her favorite TV show she had all these little beautiful things in her life Um, (laughs) for me I shared so many of these things with her and to have lost these connections is really hard Now, Colin, it sounds like you were really integral in getting her into cycling to begin with. She was an athlete. She played soccer. But um, you had gotten involved with cycling. Take me through the steps you went through to get her into cycling. And why did the sport ultimately connect with her? (laughs) So there's this really funny contrast. Um, I was talking to her recently. She loved cycling. It was one of her favorite things she did. She just loved going on her long four-hour rides. But if you go back to when this was the early days of high school for us, about 10th grade, so she was uh, 15 or so, I was trying to get her into cycling. I had been doing cycling for a year or so, was loving it, and I thought it was the perfect thing for her, and she did not want to do it. We tried to take her to two or three races and race, and she refused flatly. We literally had to drag her out of the house to one of these races with promises of, we'll buy you like some ice cream, all this stuff after the race to get her to go. She did not want to race, but she went to a race and she started winning. As you can imagine, that was a enjoyable experience for her. So uh, she became very good, very fast. And just everything about cycling suited her, the independence, the kind of discipline she had all really came together well. And she did a really good job at it. 
sounds like she was really sucked in by the analytical side of the training too. Um, you talked to me the other day about, you know, being on trainers, doing your VO2 intervals. Um, what was it about that that really appealed to her, uh, to her mind? Well, if you look at what Kelly studied, she was studying data science and I'm a data scientist myself. Um, she studied math. And then before that, she's extremely analytical mind. She loves things that are numbers and are very clear and precise. And so from the early days, like a power meter to her was a beautiful thing. Like she can sit there, she can put out all this ferocious energy she has and it comes out with a number. So it, it turned her raw energy into numbers and it like brought her two favorite things together. And I think that's one of the reasons she loved training um, and made her so good at it. So it sounds like there was an aha moment with cycling when Kelly was still in high school, but was racing with the collegiate team. I, I was hoping you could share that story with our listeners. <laughs> so both of us uh, were studying actually in the last years of a high school at the University of Minnesota, taking university classes, which meant we were eligible to race on the University of Minnesota cycling team. And they were a really fun group of people. And Kelly and I were down at some of the races, and one of the races in Iowa really stood out to me because the collegiate women's field, the uh, collegiate women's A field, was being started just, just after the men's collegiate B field. Now, normally that's not much of a problem, uh, but the collegiate A women, led by Kelly, caught the men's B field, and then she soloed away from the men's B field and dropped the men's B field. And that was one of those moments where you're like, oh, Kelly is really strong, and she impressed a lot of people that day. Uh, so that was it was really cool to see that happen. Now, what was the process by which she went from being very talented junior rider to being noticed and on the national stage? I understand at some point she was invited to a USA Cycling talent identification camp. How did that all come together? Well, she was really good from the beginning. And it was really thanks to our cycling coach, Sherry Townsend, um, who currently runs the North Star Development Team, which you may see running around the country right now. She went to one of the races in Canada, the Tour of the uh, Tour of Ramuski, and there she did a phenomenally good job of racing, um, dropping people, soloing away, really impressed a lot of people. Her, her win there um, got her a place at a talent ID camp. And from there, uh, actually, apparently at one of the training sessions, she set one of their records for like, I think a 30 second power that they'd seen ever at any of these talent ID camps. When you set a record like that, that sort of um, gets you a really strong invite to more camps, more training. And pretty quickly she was invited to the OTC full time for training before the Olympics for 2016. So Kelly goes from being a, you know, fairly typical high school student. Well, she goes from <laughs> being a high school student to being a athlete who's on the track to going to the Olympics in a fairly short time. I'm curious, what impact did that have on uh, the family? What were you guys talking about? Your, you know, you yourself, your sister, your mother and your father. How did you guys process this rapid transition of Kelly's? It was actually the hard part for her was freshman year at University of Minnesota she had an invite to go full-time train at the Olympic Training Center. And that was kind of this moment for us. Before that, we were racing on the weekends. We were training after school. But none of it was much that different from what most people out here do. That moment, she had to decide, okay, I'm going to become an athlete first, student second. And it was 
actually, it was a very hard moment because we'd always seen ourselves as academics. Um, she'd always seen her success in life coming as getting a PhD and that sort of thing. So suddenly her, her opportunities drastically changed. Um, but it, it wasn't actually that big a change for us. It was sort of a, we were going to try this thing out. We're going to you know, see if it works, give her a chance. And well, she had a really good chance. She did really well. And so we never actually were, we never like, Kelly, you've got to go get an Olympic medal. It was more like, a, we're just going to give this a try. And it worked out. So as Kelly joins the U.S. women's national pursuit team and starts competing in World Cups and international competitions, um, how did you stay in contact with her? What were the nature of your communications with her? What, what was she like during that time? Kelly's first, I'll say, roughly year and a half in Colorado Springs was, to her, she always told me a very transformative time because it was her first time living away from home. She'd been gone for weeks before, but never for years, um, kind of providing for herself. Actually, we didn't talk with her that much. I would call her maybe once a week. Um, <laughs> honestly, we mostly communicated by sending each other uh, YouTube videos back and forth for the new latest and greatest metal music we'd found for training. Um, and then after she came back from that um, Colorado Springs, that's when Kelly and I really, really kind of set up our adult relationship. And then since then, we've been communicating almost continuously. What was her, um, what was your communication like then during the 2016 Olympics? You know, as the current world champions, the American team came in with a lot of pressure on their shoulders to bring home the gold. They had a thrilling battle with Team Great Britain, came home with the silver. Uh, what do you remember from your communications with Kelly during that time? And how was her, you know, attitude around winning silver? Oh, did she... She always had an opinion, to kind of go on that last point, that silver was just as good as gold. Um, she, always, she was always annoyed at the swimmers because, you know, in swimming, you can get eight different medals for going like an extra 50 meters, for going backwards for 50 meters. You, you don't have that opportunity in cycling. So for her, that silver medal was just as good as uh, Michael Phelps' eight gold medals at any one Olympics. Um, that was, to her, very strong. And also for her, it was a team sport. She always... In some ways, it was kind of funny that until Olympics, she was not nearly as worried as you might expect. There was all sorts of stress. She had all these stories at the Olympic Training Center where the plumbing broke and their bathroom flooded. And so they're trying to find bathrooms and food, and there's all these little chaos things. That was actually what she was sharing with me at the time. Those were what was going on in her mind. She was always very calm before the event. And to her, she said, mm, in some ways, it was just another race for me. And I'm glad we did well, but Team Great Britain deserved the win. We gave it our best, and I'm happy with it. In the years following Kelly's Olympic medal, you know, she brought other challenges onto her plate. She started racing professionally with the Rally Pro Cycling team on the road. She continued racing with the U.S. national team. And then she also started pursuing a graduate degree at Stanford. Uh, in a recent column she wrote for us, she talked about the challenges of juggling all three commitments. I'm curious, in your communications with her, did you talk about that? What was her attitude towards having this much on her plate? Well, it wasn't actually that new to her. Um, she'd been doing a very similar workload uh, for, oh, the last five years or so. Um, 
her attitude was kind of the thing that I think annoyed her most was the constant international travel. That was the hardest thing for her to deal with. So when she went abroad for racing, but in general, she was, you've never seen someone who's more talented at staying focused and working no matter where she is, no matter what she was always studying. She was always training. And that's the story of her entire life. Um, that stress isn't really what got to her in the end. What can you say about Kelly's drive? You know, something that came to life in my conversations with your father was this desire on her end to not just be involved in these various activities, but to be the best. And this drive came from within. Um, what can you say about it? And what were some instances that you saw that play out in her daily life? If we go back to the earliest days, of well relatively early i remember her when she was 13 years old she had this plan to start her own business as well as also to make a, a gyrocopter and at the same time to also get a horse so she's got all these desires and when she was in fifth grade she kept she wrote something like it was almost 100 pages to give to the city council to convince them to allow miniature horses in our um, in a normal suburban plot she took things very seriously, and this was always true. Of course, the way many people were relate with, as, as a student, she would study so many hours for an exam. Uh, her math exams were in university were always impressive because she would sit at her computer. Uh, we were rooming together for two years, so um, she, would be just, she would go in, get back from her classes at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and she would study continuously until 10 p.m. at night if she'd already trained in the morning. It took me to literally drag her out of her room and say, okay, you're going to eat supper now and you're going to watch the movie. She had this really strong drive. But it was also – it could also be really funny because um, this, this drive of hers was uh, it co just constantly being used for everything. <laughs> so when she's uh, washing dishes, for example, she's just like ferocious about it. It's like this is a person who took every aspect of her life really seriously. We lost a lot of plates to her ferocity when washing dishes. Yeah, so – her, her ferocity was real. But like I said, underneath, though, she was actually a really fun person, too. It's just kind of this wonderful duality of like kind of a very fun in her personality, which just shrouded in this iron shield. Now, Colin, in the last few days, I've been in touch with your father and mother, with coaches um, and with yourself and I've been trying to get to the bottom of the reasons why Kelly took her own life. It sounds like uh, people believe that multiple factors may have contributed everything from a undiagnosed concussion to potentially the stress of her various commitments um, getting to her. Uh, I'm curious, where do you, when you think about it, what conclusions do you come to? So I actually talked with Kelly a lot about why she did her first suicide attempt, which was on January 31st, just a month before her successful second attempt. And I was trying to figure out why. And I can't say I know exactly why she did it, but I think I have a number of ideas. One, of course, as we've mentioned, she was very stressed by all the things she had to do. But that wasn't new to her. It wasn't that she hadn't been racing and training and traveling at the same time for years already. That was just sort of she was living at the knife's edge there. And some other things then kind of pushed her to slip. Uh, the concussion that she had 
Um, she had three crashes in a row. She broke her arm in December. She got sick. She crashed again. And then she had another serious crash in January where she had a major concussion. And that really, she described a lot of thoughts to me that matched with my own experience with concussions. Um, difficulty in academics, of course, difficulty focusing. She described her mind feeling like it was racing. And she, descri- and she also had this very strong anger, kind of emotions that were kind of very uncontrolled. And I, that actually scared her a bit. Um, I think she lost confidence. She lost a lot of confidence in her own mental abilities when that happened. And that, I think, hurt her pretty significantly. And in general, the, that, the concussion, I say, was really what caused her first suicide attempt is that all her changing thoughts and stuff pushed her to take this, this step to free the world from her, as she seemed to think it. The second suicide attempt, though, was a little different because she really calmed down a lot more, at least in communications with me. She was, we were making lots of plans up until like a week ago. We were call, we have long phone calls about like what we were going to do with our careers and all these plans we had for the future. <laughs> we basically had, we loved science fiction. So we've always been kind of working towards this plan of like, how can we get ourselves our own little space empire out there in the future? And so we always kind of playing with this fun little dream and how like we can manage our careers to work towards that. She was planning this with me and planning lots of things up until right before she died. And I think what really happened is, is that she was stubborn. I think that was one of her stubbornness. She voiced frustration to me several times that she'd failed to commit suicide the first time because she so hated failing. You can see that in her personality. She did well at everything. And if she failed something, she tried it again. And I'm really kind of concerned that it was really that just that refusal to take that failure. She could not take that first failure. She had to try again. So even though I think a lot of her wanted to live, her determination was so strong that she just kind of, in a moment of weakness, made herself try again. And that time she succeeded. Colin, again, I'm so sorry for your loss. That's a heartbreaking ordeal to have to go through. You know, as you were having these conversations with Kelly, I can only imagine that it must have been very confusing, shocking on your end to hear messages like this coming from your sister. Um, how did you deal with um, the knowledge that your sister was indeed you know, thinking a lot about suicide? She promised to me after her first suicide attempt that she was never going to try again. And she'd always held her word in the past before. So that gave me a lot of consolation. We as a family did not expect her to try again so soon. And that was one of the reasons. I, of course, I feel like I was to blame. And I, I, I know I shouldn't think that, but I do. Um, but in those conversations we were having, you know, Kelly and I always shared so much together. She had always been uncertain. You know? she, was never, she was never, despite how it seemed, despite it seemed that she had all this vision, she was always uncertain whether she was good enough at sports, good enough at school, whether she was doing the right thing, was she doing the thing that mattered. So when I was receiving those suicide thoughts from her, it was just the same thoughts that she'd voiced to me for many years. There was nothing new there. Um, so it was hard on me, but I, I was, I was hopeful. I, I thought we could get through this. Um, so I, I didn't actually feel terribly worried until until I actually heard the news again that she had managed to kill herself. 
Again, Colin, I, I am so, so sorry. You know, in my conversations with your father, he talked about some of the wider lessons that athletes may be able to learn from Kelly's final weeks. He talked about the need to undergo uh, neurotesting, to take head injuries extremely seriously, even ones that may seem minor, and also to listen to one's own body and mind when they, uh, an athlete may be inching closer to burnout or may be biting off a bit more than they can chew. I think these came from his own personal feelings around following Kelly. I guess my question for you is the same. You know, knowing your sister and knowing what she endured in the last months of her life, do you think there is a wider lesson that other athletes can learn? She made one very serious mistake after her concussion, which was she got back into training and she trained really hard. And the reason she did that was she hadn't realized, as she'd also never had a bad concussion before, so she hadn't realized right away that she had a bad concussion. And she made things a lot worse for herself by just diving in and forcing herself to train really hard. Um, and I think there's a, a lesson there is that if you're injured, especially if you think your brain is injured, and in a lot of crashes it is even if you don't realize it right away, you've got to take that really seriously and you've got to back off. And it is very hard to self-diagnose a concussion. Um, I've had three minor concussions myself and I can say you can't just, you don't necessarily know right away you have a concussion. You really have to be ideally tested if you're on a team, have some testing protocols, see a medical professional. It, it all makes a big difference um, because I think concussions, and we've seen this in football and such too, concussions across all sports are not taken nearly as seriously as they could be. Um, and just a reminder to athletes to take it seriously for themselves and to remember that these concussions, even it may not seem bad right away, can have really, they can take weeks to develop and you need to be really careful about that sort of thing. Colin, what are the memories of Kelly that you will take with you? Oh, it'd be easier question to answer what memories I could take that aren't connected with her. Um, because everything I do in my life, when I'm listening to music, I think, oh, Kelly loved that song. When I'm watching a movie, I think, oh, Kelly loved this actor, that movie. Um, I think what I really remember about Kelly is, like I've said before, was her determination. Um, her just, <laughs> in some ways, almost inflexible thinking about things. Um, and But yet her all her artistic love of things and dragons and fantasy and just kind of remembering how that all came together into someone who is so incredibly unique. Um, it's uh, everything. <laughs> when I'm eating chocolate, all I can think of is Kelly ate a lot of this chocolate every week. She ate, oh, she ate tons of chocolate. <laughs> everything about Kelly was unique and special to me. And uh, honestly, I think truly to expect, I will remember her every day, <laughs> probably every hour of every day for the rest of my life. Um, just because that's how closely entwined we were for the last 23 years, which were our entire life. Colin, again, my deepest sympathies go out to you, your family, Kelly's friends and teammates. Everyone here at Velo News has been following the story and has been heartbroken. Um, let's check in in a couple of weeks to see how everyone is doing. But thanks again for coming on the podcast and best of luck with the rest of the day. And thank you for helping me share these memories of Kelly. Thanks, Colin. 
again, you know, we have stories about Kelly on the website bringing her life uh, together and then also some letters from people who knew her well. Um, Spencer, before we get out of here, we have more racing going on this week. I think we should finish up talking about the two races going on this week. We have uh, Perry Nice, which started on Sunday, and we have Tirreno Adriatico, which starts the day after recording this Wednesday. Uh, so Perry Nice up to this point, well, first of all, Perry Nice, just the race that constantly gives us pictures of it's just rain and wind pictures of riders trying to put on their gilets struggling to put on their gilets looking cold looking miserable just like it's just like the cold rainy wet race what have we seen so far northern france in march is, is not a great place to be and certainly that well, that holds true for these first three stages of perry nice Man, I'll tell you, we've seen some very exciting racing. From a fan's perspective, you love this, and it's really tough for the riders, and it's it's unfortunate we've seen a number of big riders out of the race with injuries after crashing. Michael Matthews, Rigoberto Uran, uh, Gorka Izaguirre, a number of riders, pretty significant injuries. It's, it's a bummer to, to see that happen, but man, I'll tell you what, especially this stage two that happened on Monday, boy, the echelons were so, so hard. There were guys just getting blown out the back of the race right off the right off the bat as it was just so windy and and one thing that i really was was taken by was how aggressive team sky chose to race in this windy day on stage two they they put in the latter kilometers of this race they put luke Rowe on the front and he just guttered everyone and immediately it turned into a small front group of less than 20 guys and you know who was there with him Egon Bernal. This Colombian star is is really shining bright already. He's only two years into his World Tour career with Team Sky, and it's like every time we we ask a question of him, he answers with a very strong affirmative. Where it's like, oh, can Egan Bernal hold the GC lead in a time trial? Yes, he can. Can he ride in some of the hardest crosswind conditions that Europe has to offer? Clearly, yes, he can. He only got five seconds on his rivals in that first in that second stage, granted, but it still was a real strong strong bellwether of how versatile this guy is. And man, I'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to do in the remainder of this race when we actually get into climbs that are more favorable for, for his true strength. Yeah, that is so impressive. Egan Bernal weighs probably about as much as my left leg. And he's like almost as tall as you are. Yeah. And so, you know, riders who are awesome climbers, we often hear uh, rumblings from riders uh, off the record about how terrible some of these guys can be in echelons and in windy, challenging positions. You know, the big brawny riders of the Peloton, the classics guys love to joke about when some poor, you know, Yuskatel rider ends up in the echelons and they just, you know, just pick the guy over. So to see Igan Bernal this early in his career, able to ride with such confidence and poise in these echelons, I think is really impressive. And you know what? The thing about Perry Nice and Tirreno is these are legitimate um, sort of warm-up prep races. Yes, it means a lot to win them. People want to win these races. But from when I was at the UAE Tour, when I was posing the question of the is the UAE Tour a warm-up race, and people were like, no, that's its own you know, distinct animal. People were pointing to Perry Nice and Tirreno because of, hey, these are the roads we're going to be on at the Tour de France. These are the roads we're going to be on at the Giro. We can test ourselves in the wind, with the echelons, with the tactics, with all these different things that are going to come into play. So this is a first test for Egan Bernal as he's getting ready for the Giro. So far, 
I think he's passing. Yeah, I would say he's passing with flying colors, but there's still a lot of racing remaining at Paris-Nice, and uh, it's going to get even better now from from here on out. The the sprint stages they're they're pretty entertaining, but man, I'll tell you what, you know, we got the stage five individual time trial, uh, and then also right in, and then from that point on, it's mountains. It's, you know, stages six through eight are all mountain stages, and let's not forget that that short stage around Nice, the 110 kilometer race, which always produces exciting racing. That's how that's how the race was was won last year, and. Garrett Thomas narrowly lost a, or excuse me, Simon Yates narrowly lost that one. So up to this point, we have seen Dylan the Gronin Wagon <laughs> winning two stages. Uh, new homeowner Dylan Gronenwagen I saw wow. on uh, Instagram. Adulting. Yeah, his home looked really nice too. I mean, it'd be funny if it was like a uh, like you know like a tiny home or something like that. Uh, anyway, new homeowner Dylan Gronenwagen winning two stages and stage three today uh, on Tuesday was won by Sam Bennett. Sam Bennett who gave us the keyboard warriors uh, yeah, term in my story at UAE tour. Nice. You never want to get in a fight with those keyboard warriors. Let me mm-hmm. tell you. No. Hey, keyboard warriors, at us. <laughs> Just come at us. Uh, let's move on to Terreno. That is starting uh, another lumpy, hilly profile on tap for this year. Again, you know, the thing about Terreno is, man, these insane, crazy roads. Weather can be inclement. It's a perfect tune-up race for the Giro. The thing I think about with Terreno, though, is, man, there's always there's always crashes. I feel like someone's season, early season, is always wrecked by Terreno Adriatico. And it seems like this year we have a pretty pretty good lineup of uh, contenders. Here we do. Uh, the, the only thing that's a little funny about Terreno this year is that there's not a true mountaintop finish stage. The, the, the race organizers are specifically telling us that this year they opted for a stage that focuses on these muros, as they call them. I think I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I'm not speaking Italian to you. I'm sorry about that. But these walls, these short wall climbs, and a number of these stages have them, and they'll favor a slightly different rider. Yes, we do have some of the heavy hitters for the GC battle. You've got your, you know, guys like Vincenzo Nibali, and you've got Garrett Thomas, of course. You've got Jakob Fulsang, our friend from Strada Bianca. Adam Yates will be there as well. These guys, very strong riders, a lot of potential there. There's going to be the team time trial and individual time trial uh, that will, I think, be a large part of deciding the overall. But, man, I'm looking at a guy like Julian Alphilippe and thinking he looks pretty good for these type of punchy climbs that we're going to face in these stages in the heart of the race. I think this will be a really interesting test, too, for Primoz Roglic. I agree. Because, you know, it's one thing to win the UAE Tour, wide open roads, win that team time trial, defend the lead. It's a whole other beast to try and win Tirreno on these crazy roads, really aggressive peloton. Yes, there's the team time trial again, but uh, Primoz is going to have to be real punchy if he wants to win. Granted, he also won Tour of the Boss Country last year. So those are some pretty narrow and twisty and difficult roads as well. Wouldn't write him off at all. And certainly what we saw at UAE Tour was that He's riding aggressive. He's riding strong. He likes to attack the climbs. And if the, if the course plays out like the organizers want it to, it's going to encourage a rider to attack like we've seen Roglic do over the years. All right. Give me a winner. Who's going to win this race? I, I'm going with Alaphilippe, I think. Yeah. He's got... Uh, He's got a he's got a great punch, and I think he's a, he's a strong enough time trialist to to contend at the end. How many stages does Peter Sagan win? I don't think Sagan wins any. Oh. I've seen some reports that he's coming into this uh, off of an illness. I think mm-hmm. he he's got a little bit of a stomach bug or something like that. I think he's not at a hundred percent, and I you know honestly he might not even finish 
finish this race. I, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how it goes after the first couple of stages. But unfortunately, Sagan not at his best for Toronto. Hey, you know, stomach bug. Sometimes I think it's normal. I will say I he did. If you read his book, he did win the world championships in Norway after coming down sick uh, in the weeks leading up to the race and not really having a, he, he admitted in that book, he, he wasn't even sure he was going to finish that race. Maybe that's the bellwether for Peter Sagan's great success. Yeah. Well, lose a little weight, you know? Well, I think that's going to do it for us again. Uh, thoughts, condolences to Kelly Catlin family, Friends and teammates, um, you can read all about her on VeloNews.com. And thanks again to Colin Catlin for coming on the podcast this week. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. VeloNews podcast is produced by VeloNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and the opinions expressed on the Villainies podcast are those of the individual and as always we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Purdy classic Soul Drums. Oh, 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 oh.